This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Is it cheaper to get a ticket than to pay to park? I think about that sometimes. I think about that process. Not in one of the underground lots where it's not fun to pay eight bucks an hour and then you go over your half hour and the next thing you know, you're 20 bucks and you just happen to have breakfast with somebody. Um, But the city is quite aware that you're playing the game and I'm playing the game where you think, can I get away with nobody spotting my car and can I get away with no ticket? So they want, obviously, in a city that searches for revenue like Toronto, every municipality is doing that right now. The concept would be, let's make it a little bit of a little bit of a more dicey proposition for you just to leave your car and not pay for parking. So let me get into some of the specifics of this uh, in the time we've got before uh, the next few minutes. And this is really quite fascinating. Stiffer penalties are coming. The city wants to make money right now. Current fine for parking illegally in the city. And if you're in an off-street lot, 30 bucks. Here's the problem. You'll pay more than that for a big event. If you're going and parking near Bud Stage, like there's some of those busy nights near the C, near the X where the CNE's on, maybe TFC or the Argos are playing at BMO and there's a concert at Bud Stage. So you've got borderline, and maybe the Jays are there too. Maybe the Jays are at home. So let's say you've got 60,000 people plus whatever the baseball crowd is. Spots are hard to find. So these paid lots end up being able to charge much, much more. We've all done it. We've all thought, ah, let's eat this. I got I got three other guys in the car. Let's all throw in 10 bucks and pay 40 bucks and park right right next to the venue. So we're not walking a couple blocks. So we're so we're nearby or we want to go to the bar before the game, the concert, whatever. We'll do that. But that's exactly what the city's noticing, that you, you know that the, most, the highest ticket you can get is 30 bucks, and you know that the proprietors of the parking lot want 45 So why not park on the street, pay zero, risk getting 30 bucks, and if you don't, you've saved yourself $45. Here's the number that jumped out to me. Last year, 22, okay, so 2022, we're all back to, to doing things, at least in the last 10 months of the year. The number of parking violation notices in city lots, over 106,000. It's more than the 95,000 in 2021. Well, that makes sense. But here is what is noteworthy. Violations in private lots jumped to about 377,000 from 320,000. So what does the city want to do? They want to double the fine for parking without paying to 75 bucks. I know that seems like a lot. That's what these um, red light cameras and what these speeding uh, areas outside of school zones are like now. You, you do that, you're getting a ticket for 65 bucks, 75, 80 bucks. If approved by council, and I, I bet you they approve it, the higher fines go to thousands of spaces all over the place. Now, 75, if you compare this to other cities, New York, Chicago, they don't charge near that much if you're parked on the street without a ticket. You're looking at about a 25 to $40 ticket. But in a major city where they're jacking you for parking near big things, the city's saying people are taking their chances, they're rolling the dice, and they're parking for free. We have to get that money somehow. I think that's really, really interesting. Councillor Paul Ainsley uh, said, is quoted in the Toronto Star, said, harsher fine, he's good with it. And it's on par with those fees imposed by some other neighboring municipalities. I don't know. I are are the tickets like that in Hamilton? Are they like that in in uh, Scar in in uh, Scarborough and Pickering? I have no idea. 
But I'd be surprised if people are getting $75 parking tickets for just being on the street or for your green pea running out. If you're by a fire hydrant or you're blocking a school zone, I got you. They may tow your car away. We've all had that happen. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This uh, interesting story where the city has finally figured it out that it costs more. It costs more to park for big, large honking events like $45, $50 sometimes, depending on, you know, the game, the concert, whatever, um, than it does to pay your parking tickets. People just leaving their cars on the street. Our friend uh, is uh, chief executive officer of Exhibition Place, and he's quoted in the Toronto Star story, so we thought we'd get the word from him. He is Don Boyle. It's great to have you back on Toronto Today. Don, appreciate the time. Oh, thanks so much, Greg. I hope you're having a good morning. Yeah, decent enough. It's um, it's one of those things where you weighed in on this and said you clearly see it. And, and we talk about that confluence of events when you have something huge going on at uh, at one of your at one of your exhibition place buildings or a big concert at Bud Stage at the same time BMO Fields in use. People are just randomly leaving cars all over the place because they're thinking I'd rather pay the thirty dollars on the risk that I might pay no dollars. Well, as you know, uh, Greg, I've been down here now since 2019, although we had a couple of years of COVID. And it was one of the reviews I was doing was just on sort of our parking, how we do it, and trying to make the site more animated. And one of the things I came across was the parking fee, uh, the, the fine of $30, and thinking, well, that's no deterrent when we're charging 32 and 40 for special <laughs> events down here. We got, a, we, got a, we got an issue. And so uh, when, as soon as we came across it, we uh, approached the city because we needed their approval council's approval for raising fines and so we got in the queue and thankfully we're there at that point now and uh that fine will be uh, raised so at least it's a deterrent and we're also trying to go to uh, more of a pay and display a less uh, sort of traditional you know attendant uh site with uh, barriers and, and more of a Come on in, frictionless. Uh, come park and enjoy your activity. What I love that you changed. Uh, you know, I come down for the soccer a lot. What I love that you change is you, just the gates are open and there's a Greenpeace sign, and it just everybody's able to get into their spot easier than here. One car with a credit card, run it through, wait for it to be approved, and on and on and on. That really delayed people getting in for for soccer. It's an event that's really only an hour and fifty minutes, so nobody wants to miss fifteen minutes because they're waiting in line to park. Well, that exactly. And as soon as I, we looked at it, and I hadn't been down on the site in a long time before I, t- I took this uh, position. And looking at the queues and just thinking, okay, there's a better way. Mm-hmm. We already have the technology. We're using it all over. And the idling of cars. I mean, today with this an, an exhibition place is really a forefront of environmental kind of uh, you know, methods of trying to do business better. This was one of the ones that just seemed quite, uh, quite obvious. And we're trying to animate the site. So I'd love to, at one point, get rid of all those sort of parking barriers and those attendant booths and really just have parking ambassadors, people here to help you with the app or to move you through it. But get you parked and then really get you what you're here for. You're here to enjoy an event. Don Boyle's joining us, CEO of Exhibition Place, um, and did say his organization approached the city of Toronto about toughening up their parking penalties. Was there any resistance um, from any city councillors or the current mayor at the time saying, ah, you know, we charge people enough for this. Toronto's an expensive city. We don't want to do this. Any resistance? Yeah, no resistance. It's, just, it's time, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big organization, and, and it's really time to get onto the, uh, onto the uh, council agenda. And, and fit within it. But I think everybody understands that at the end of the day, parking fines are really there to serve as a deterrent, to 
to get people to do what's kind of you know the, the proper course of business and uh, and make it uh, a more enjoyable site for everybody to enjoy. So no, we, the support is being uh, positive. I, again, we'd rather people just come in. Pay the uh, pay pay the the fee and enjoy their event. So you do mention the honor system without giving away state secrets. How many how many sort of enforcement agents would be checking every car? It's a, it's the stress of everybody thinking ah you know I'm going to get this and it's the honorable thing to do is to pay what what's being asked for parking. But do you spot a lot of cars that that aren't being honorable and aren't paying paying the fee? Yeah, so I think it's probably somewhere in around the 10%, 10 to 15% that, that don't pay the fee. But what's interesting with technology, and that's one of the things that's sort of on the forefront of Exhibition Place, and it's really on my radar, is we're looking at a, at a license plate uh, uh, ability to be able to monitor cars. And in fact, for enforcement, all you do is drive along the lots, and any car that's not uh, has not paid pops up. Um, and so it's very, very quick. You don't have to look at the license plate. You just simply drive by and your monitor actually goes off on any vehicle that has to be paid. So we're going to be going to a license plate uh, uh, monitoring system. So if you just come in and you don't have any app and you just do it, you, you put in your license plate number and you get your ticket, put it in your car. But you don't even have to put in your car because your license plate tells us that you've paid and you're there. And if you use the app, it's automatically your license plate. Is, is marked up. And so from an enforcement perspective, one person can literally do like two, 3,000 cars by simply driving around given the, the number that are in fraction. That's remarkable tech. Like I'm blown away. That's remarkable technology. When you first saw that that tech, you must have been like, this is incredible. Like you never you never would think something like that could be invented. You know, that, that's, that's just it. And we've been trying to push the envelope here at Exhibition Place in so mm. many different ways because we know we need to move forward. Uh, we want it. We don't want it to be the old industrial park that has a phenomenal CNE for 18 days, and then people are like, "Well, what happens down there?" We do five and a half million people here. One of the things we're really proud of this year is QE Theater. The QE Theater is being fully yeah. renovated, and their uh, their 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 book of business all through the fall and winter is jammed with great entertainment. So all our tenants down here doing lots of great things. Well, and you need that parking revenue. I, you know, I, I've done one ride along with a cop once, Don, um, uh, and I, I would do a ride along with one of your parking enforcement. And I might even want the job. I, I may drop a resume <laughs> off later. I can do it on my off hours in the evening. <laughs> before a game. Before a game. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll have to have you down to see it. And as I say, that's that's where we're heading to. Mm-hmm. We're just in the infancy stages. We piloted this year. I, I'm a big one for just moving. Let's just move forward. So as you've experienced with the TFC games, we just said, hey, we're going to do it. We're going to use our parking uh, attendants as ambassadors, go the positive route, and get people in uh, so they can mm-hmm. enjoy their events. And, once we get the technology fully in place, then it'll be uh, uh, absolutely seamless. Don Boyle, uh, CEO of Exhibition Place. Thanks for giving us some great insight on why this is uh, all coming to roost. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the time, Greg. Take you care. bet. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We've all been talking about this story from Friday, well, really Saturday onward with the Friday developments of a Ukrainian man serving in a Nazi unit, 97 years old aside, showing up, being an invited guest of the House Speaker Anthony Rhoda, and not just that, but being applauded. This guy just wasn't a face in the crowd. He wasn't a spectator sitting in Section 538, Row 20. He was part of what the honoring was. And again, we got to start teaching World War II a little bit better in schools, because if you're fighting against the Russians in 1943, 
You're not exactly fighting on our side in 1943. That's how it goes. I want to bring on a former liberal MP, best-selling author, and she's been very, very kind with her time on our show. I'm a big fan. Selena Cesar Chavan. It's great to have you on Toronto today again. Thank you. So great to be with you, Greg. Well, this is so interesting to us, and we were thinking yesterday what it's like to go through security, what it's like to get into the House of Commons, and you would have been on the floor when then the sitting U.S. president, soon to be departing, Barack Obama, would have been addressing parliament in 2016. I got to break. I got to believe Selena Cesar Chavan can't just uh, um, invite uh, best friends, neighbors and relatives uh, <laughs> to come. I didn't to- get to extend any invitations <laughs> on that one. You didn't get a plus one me- or a plus four. <laughs> exactly. I didn't get a plus one. No. Um, but let me just create some color here for your listeners, Greg. When I was in parliament as a parliamentary secretary. I was screened by CSIS, R- CRA, RCMP. If my credit rating dropped a little bit, somebody knew what was happening. So even the, though these invitations are sent by the speaker, by members of parliament, by the prime minister, that list goes to get screened. So there's one of two things could have happened here. Either the list was screened, somebody flagged it, and Anthony Rhoda still went ahead with the invitation, in which case his calls to be fired are completely legit. However, if the list was screened and nobody flagged it within our central intelligence agency at all, then there's a problem with the internal mechanism. The second thing is, is when this guy shows up on Parliament Hill, he goes through a, a battery of, of searches and and Uh, security protocols, as soon as his credentials are entered into the system, it should bring up a or something that says that this person is not to be at the audience of a head of state, never mind coming into the parliament whatsoever. So there's a couple of different steps here that should have been taken that clearly were missed uh, by our intelligence or by uh, the House Speaker, Anthony Rota. And if even if we are to debate, even if I'm to debate with you and say, ah, World War II is so tricky. He was born in Eastern Europe. It's hard to tell who volunteered for what and who conscripted for what, who was conscripted for what. That's fine. But the bottom line you're saying is there's a clear vetting process that goes through the prime minister's office. And they basically utterly <laughs> denied that yesterday and, and acted like Anthony Rota, um, you know, brought somebody to a Christmas party at a bar or a backyard barbecue. That's not how that would work that is that is correct and and there has to be a again this is a head of state and i'm not saying that that should be any extra protocols because you do remember a few years ago that there was a breach there was a security issue Mm -hmm. and there were there was shots fired within the the parliamentary precinct and in in parliament so that should have been beefed up again once those credentials are presented there should have been someone that flagged it and presented that to the prime minister's office and then presented it to Anthony Rota as to not, not only embarrass ourselves as Canadians, you have a visiting head of state applauding. He, they would have no idea. They would assume that we had our, our ducks in an order before inviting people and giving them a standing ovation. So I must I'm really confused as to where the chips fell here. And it's easy to say fire Anthony Rota. Yeah. What is much harder to do is to say, let's fix 
whatever debacle of a system allowed this individual to enter in the first place. But you also know the importance of the speaker. And when the end, when the NDP and blocks say, I, I, I'm sorry, like basically they're, they're saying it out loud. We're not going to take you as seriously as we took you Thursday afternoon. That's a problem. It's not even the conservatives that have called for his resignation right now. Greg, that is a political, like that's just political toying. There is a, pro- so again, I could put any Yahoo on a list. Doesn't mean that that Yahoo is going to get through. Now, again, we've had situations where intelligence has given our members of parliament, our ministers files, and the files have not been read. There needs to be an investigation as to where the buck dropped here, where the, the shoe dropped or whatever dropped in this case. It's easy to call for his resignation. It's mm-hmm. harder to actually figure out how to make the system proper. So once you do, what do you do? You get rid of Anthony Rhoda and then next week somebody gets invited and they don't do the process again. The harder situation is to actually investigate what went wrong and fix the root of that problem, which I don't know. And, and they mm-hmm. don't tend to want to do. Yeah. Cause, and then there's a, an acknowledgement that the system's broken as opposed to it's a one-off and, and here's the blame going Absolutely. on one person. Do you, have, do you have to, like, if you're bringing somebody in, Selena, do you have to swipe passports? Do you have any other documentation yes. printed out yes. you have to bring? Yes, you have to bring all kinds of credentials. You have to at least have a, a driver's license. A, as I as I said, you know, you have to bring those credentials in. You get screened. You are mm. registered at the at parliamentary uh, parliamentary protective services. However, you are bringing in a head of state. So that is when you bring in CSIS, you bring in all of your intelligence to do those screenings, RCMP, to do those screenings such that you do not have this embarrassment. He's not coming in for a tour. He's coming in to be honored by someone who is visiting, a head of state who's visiting. This is a you step up your game, you step up your protocols, you step up your security in that. Aspect. Yeah, you do all that. Hey, thank you for uh, shedding light on this. And I always enjoy our conversations. I always get smarter when I talk to you. Thanks for the time this morning. No problem. Good morning to everyone. Selena's uh, Cesar Siobhan joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's zero in right now on that story uh, from Halton. It's quite concerning. And our next guest was certainly making mention of it uh, via social media. He's a former Toronto police officer and Peel police officer as well. He uh, is kind enough to join us now. We're happy to have him. And uh, of course, it's Ron Chinzer. Ron, thank you very much for the time this morning. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about whatever I can. Well, you mentioned that this is just a disturbing moment. And I suppose I think the average person listens to the story, Ron, and and may listen to your perspective and say, if current police officers in a force aren't safe in a busy area in a major city, is anyone else anymore? No, that's exactly the point. You know, we've seen an increase in not only crime in Canada over the last, you know, five plus years. But we're seeing officers get murdered at a substantially higher rate than any other time in this country's history, which is an indicator of of a much bigger problem. Look, if somebody is willing to attack a police officer, kill a police officer, what is their capacity to harm the general public? And we are seeing that in statistics. And you hit it on the head when you say, you know, know, what's the point of all this? How targeted do officers feel or how, you know, when when you talk to colleagues that are still in 
you know, serving on a, on a regular basis. And, and obviously these stories are remarkably harrowing for the rest of us, but I can imagine they can, they hit home right in the middle of the chest a hundred times more to those that have to go out and, and risk their safety in, in tough circumstances. Oh, 1000%. You know, the, the hard hitting parts about this is the facts that are the ones that the, the conditions that nobody wants to talk about. I mean, look, you, yeah, why don't you think about, you know, some of your best friends in your life. Those are people you've had intimate moments with being really tough times or good times in your life. Now, when you're a police officer, you form really deep bonds with your peers because you're responding to, you know, five to 10 extreme things a day together. So you develop this relationship. And when you hear of another police officer getting murdered, um, you know, it's difficult because if a cop gets murdered, who's responding to that? Other cops. Who's investigating that? Other cops. Who's breaking the news to the family? Other cops. That also includes paramedics and firefighters. So when you have those experiences and you know people who've had those experiences and you hear this happening across the country, it has such a tremendous impact for you that it's, a, it's like not only is it a morale killer, but it causes a lot of questions in your head. And when you talk about police officers feeling like they're targeted, it isn't just the fact of on top of now feeling like we're going to die every time you go out there and you do your job. But we've been the victim of uh, meeting that attack, not being you know, a targeted attack, but we've lost our identity as Canadians. And whatever happens in the United States, we automatically see what happens to Canadians. And unfortunately, police officers being the low-hanging fruit, being the arm of government decisions, you know, it just amplifies that. So now you look on top of we've been villainized as a profession. Um, you know, we don't feel supported by the legal system. And then now we're actively getting attacked and murdered. And there's no voice out there advocating for the profession and for the people doing the job. Ron Chinzer is our guest, 20 years on the force with Toronto uh, Police and Peel Police as well. Joining us on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. Is this all, have you seen a, a sea change uh, during the, the, the lockdowns, the pandemic and post? Or was there something sort of bubbling in the water supply prior to 2020? How do you view it? Uh, bill, the bill change, uh, sorry, Bill C-75, the bill change, that was a significant part of things. There was a combination, that bill change, if anybody really looks at what happened there, it's a joke. Uh, what happened is in Canada in the early 2010s, there was five major cases before the Supreme Court of Canada, all of them withdrawn. We're talking murder, child sexual assault, bad ones. They were withdrawn because it took five years from the day they were charged to the end of that court case for this to reach a, a conclusion. Now, that's an infringement on your charter of rights to have a reasonable trial. So the government took a look at this and said, well, what happened? How did these, after five years for these cases, these cases got withdrawn? What happened? And what they realized was about 25% of all cases before the federal courts in Canada had to do with bail offenses. But call them bail offenses. They call them administration of justice offenses, AOJA offenses. And the government's response to this inability to handle the growing crime problem in the country was not to create more courts, create more jails, innovate and tech stream the court system. It was to reduce the inflow. And they justified the reduce of inflow of cases into the Canadian legal system by reducing the ability, or sorry, the qualifications of bail. There is no repercussion to the negative decision anymore if you're home. That's the basic economy of the decision is, does the cost outweigh the benefit? And in this case, there is no cost to these offenses. Now we were arresting you know, violent people that were on serious crimes. I'll give you a great example. A, a month prior to me resigning from thing, uh, we had arrested um, two males in a stolen car with a loaded gun. They were on bail for attempted murder. Now that just amplified everything prior to COVID. Then when COVID happens, you see a substantial growth in organized crime, the drug trade, because now we had people that were stuck inside their house. Yeah. Drug trade blew up, which is supported by organized crime and street gangs. Now, when you see random acts of violence in streets, 
a good portion of that is connected to the drug trade. It's turf war. And, and we're seeing an amplified where, you know, just a couple months ago, we had that, you know, poor 44-year-old woman killed in downtown Toronto. That was a drug turf war. And we see this amplifying for police officers that are looking at repeat criminals. Even dispatchers are getting frustrated with it. Paramedics are frustrated with it. Fire departments get, uh, you know, triaged out on a three-tier response whenever there's serious bodily harm yeah. and there's a chance of CPR bringing somebody back. Everybody's just banging around on the yeah. wall. What is going on? I got about 30 seconds left, uh, Ron. Are, are are you hopeful that these, these people are caught in, in Ottawa who attacked the two officers? Oh, I'm, I'm praying they get caught because regardless of if they had known that these were police officers or not, and look, the information I got, contrary to what's being told today, is that this was a targeted attack. That's the information I got from a variety of people out there. I'm praying they get caught because regardless of these police officers or not, this is a cowardly attack. It could have been absolutely anybody, and that's the stuff we're all fearful of is, are we next? Ron, thanks so much for this this morning, uh, telling your uh, telling your story, and, and I hope we can do this again sometime. I think it's an important to to amplify your views. Thank you for the time this morning. Thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Ron Chinzer joining us, former police officer. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Polaro poll where 40% of Canadians can name at least one federal cabinet minister. I'm just going to do this with everybody in my phone today. Name a cabinet minister, you got 10 minutes, and see what the responses are. And then I'm going to read the names, even the fake names in the phone, the names of people I don't know, like like Bill Golf. This is like, have you played golf with a guy named Bill and you don't know his last name, you just put in Bill Golf. Let's see if he can name a cabinet minister. Uh, April Engelberg uh, ran for uh, office in the last municipal election. Super smart. She can, this is not even a contest. She can name nine cabinet ministers alphabetically while standing on her head, probably. She joins me right now. What do you make of that stat? 40% of us Canadians, April, can name one federal cabinet minister. Maybe not at 630 in the morning because people haven't had their coffee yet. Maybe that. Um, I, I wish it was more my, I, I'm more into playing the game with city councillors, which I actually find <laughs> is even worse than that. Fewer people can name their city councillors. Your best 10 friends. How many, how many of those 10 friends can name two city councillors? Not many, <laughs> not many. <laughs> I, I was once at an event where there was 25 people and I, we were playing a game and I asked, if people could name city councillors and they could not to be uh, yeah that's quite it, a party it, game i know some people like to play charades i don't think twister i'm too old for twister now people muscles get torn um but nonetheless that's a i like that as a party game name name a city councillor for fun and prizes or shots or something <laughs> or something uh to that extent we talked about i i want to get to um i know you've got some great stuff on um uh, candidates and campaign finance limits. And I, I agree. I think there should be some reform to this. So we'll, we'll go deeper into that. But Young and Dundas Square, we had Josh Matlow on yesterday. I want you to hear what he said really quick about Young and Dundas Square. I really think that Dundas Square needs to be a re- reimagined. Um, you know, Toronto uh, has a very long and I'd say shameful history when it comes to public spaces mm-hmm. where it seems to reach for the height of mediocrity. There's just lots of concrete and there you go. Uh, Nathan Phillips Square is, isn't much different. And I think we can do a lot better when it comes to putting more, you know, patios out there, uh, you know, busker street performances, um, you know, animated in a way that, that makes it attractive for people to come. And I think if we do that, people will go to it. And by, by making them vibrant, wonderful places to go, 
they'll also be more attractive for investment. So that's on Toronto Today yesterday. April, when you see Young and Dundas Square, when you walk through, when you meet a friend there, what do you envision? What can improve it? That's great. I've been talking about Young Young and Dundas Square now for years and what a potential the space has, um, especially because we're going to be totally redoing Young Street. There's a huge project called Young Tomorrow, where Young Street downtown is getting completely redone with a better focus on pedestrians and just public the public realm in general. So it should feel like the center of our city instead of just concrete. It should be a place to gather. And I think a lot of the focus there is about how much money, it, like it, it's all about how, you know, Young and Dundas Square is losing this much dollars per day or whatever. But I don't think that that's really the point. Like, we don't look at a road and say, mm-hmm. how profitable is this street? You know, it's the public realm isn't necessarily made to make money. It should be about how useful it is for the people. Um, so what I'd like to see is a place that you can actually gather. It would be nice if you could actually go meet somebody for coffee, for example, at Young and Dundas Square, if there was public seating, for example. Um, and obviously, if we made better use of it as an event space. Yeah, there's like I think we go there and we see you know a few Muskoka chairs and we see some like flower uh, buckets, but generally speaking, there isn't you know and and they'll bring in infrastructure. Here's a big concert. Here's I mentioned yesterday when the when World Cups have been on before they set up a giant screen and maybe you get thirty or forty people standing around. But there's nothing omnipresent all the time. Three sixty five twenty four seven. To your point, that we can go and enjoy there. Exactly. And it, it really is it's a place right now that I definitely don't want to hang out. I, if I'm ever young and done desk guards, okay, let's keep moving. But it would be nice if it was a place that you actually wanted to meet somebody if it actually felt like the center of the city. What are you spotting there? We had a uh, TMU prof uh, note there's a safe oh. injection site at Young and Dundas that has become more problematic. Um, I'm definitely spotting um, just people that are um, preaching or trying to sell certain things or just various people with megaphones. And that kind of, yeah, I can, (laughs) I can understand that dissuades that dissuades, not just tourists, but it dissuades Torontonians to your point from saying, well, this is where we should meet. You'll be like, can we get somewhere away from bullhorns and megaphones and people harassing us? Of course, anybody would do that. Right. It, it, it's not it's not a place that for now at least that I could that I could just go to enjoy the public space and I and I wish that it was. April Engelberg's our guest on Toronto today um, on six forty Toronto. Um, spending limits for city council elections. Um, you've made the point because you've done this and run for public office. I think the audience and I think the public would be really surprised about rebates people get uh, from the city. And it ends up sort of, you know, there probably needs to be a bit of a restructuring. Can you tell us what the system's like right now and what you'd like to see it change to? Definitely. So now is a good time to talk about campaign finance because the, the we have, not everybody has filed, but many of the candidates for mayor in this past by-election have filed. And we can see how much, various candidates raised and spent. So for example, Annabelle Lau came in the top with raising approximately 2.1 million, whereas um, Chow raised about 1.6 million. And what I would say about campaign finance at the city level 
is that it's a huge burden to taxpayers. We don't think about it that way. But the reality is that if you if you donate or make a contribution to a city council campaign, you get up to 75% of your contribution back directly from the city. So, for example, if you had donated $100 to, to Chow's campaign, you would get back $75. And that money comes from the city. Yeah. And yeah. our city has a budget problem. So, yes, it goes down. So, for example, if you gave back a thousand, you might, you don't get back the full 75%. You get a smaller percentage. But Wait, does way, it max out at a certain number? It does max out at a certain number. Yes. It starts to go down once it, you're at a either 200 or 300, you get start to get a smaller percentage. But and is that the same for city councilor? If I donated three hundred dollars yeah. to you running for city council, yeah. I'd I'd get two hundred. I'd get two twenty five of that back. Um, seventy five percent of it. I forget if the percentage goes down at two hundred or three hundred. Okay, but yes, that's crazy. Um, so so yes, it's a huge it's a huge huge cost to the city um, when we're giving back up to 75% of contributions. So for example, if you're looking at a uh, child's campaign of 1.6 million, that's honestly, I would estimate around $750,000 of, of the city's money that is going back to contribution that is going back to the people that have given the contribution. And we just can't afford that. And what I would also say is there's no need to have the spending limit be this high. And I, here's what I would say to anyone running for mayor, to anyone running for city councilor, is that once elected, you're going to have to deal with a huge budget problem. You're going to have to learn to make do yeah. with less money. So if in order to get elected, you should be able to prove yourself by running an, by running a campaign with significantly less than two point one million or one point six million Absolutely. to run for mayor. Absolutely. Um yeah, we, we almost need a blaring headline saying this is what it costs the city to give all these uh, rebates back for people who donated to every single municipal candidate. That's almost what we need to sort of set the alarm bells off. I gotta leave it there, but let's keep chatting about it's such an important issue for a city looking under the couch cushions for money right now, April. I appreciate you coming on. Sounds great. Yes. Have a great rest of your day. April Engelberg joining us on Toronto Today.